0: Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today's episode features Mike Newman, who's going to review the questions and answers for our construction documents mock exam. Uh, the questions Mike will review will help to give you a strategy for how to study for this exam um, and some of the terms and topics you're going to see in this exam. Now, if you haven't done so uh, already, make sure you download the mock exam in the show notes. Uh, And before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. Uh, During the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike. And if you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online AIA ARE prep curriculum. If you haven't already checked out our AIA ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. And today we have two very special Black Spectacles promo codes to share, so make sure you stick around until the end of the day's episode. But first, let's hand it over to Mike.
1: Welcome everybody, uh, and let me start by doing the rather odd thing of apologizing that uh, I have a bit of a sore throat, and so you may hear some gagging and coughing in the background, and no worries, uh, Mark will make sure that nobody dies in the process. Uh, So uh, uh, here we go, we're just gonna dive right in. One quick thing to say is that uh, construction documents and services, like all the exams, but certainly this one, uh, is actually a very wide, wide, wide exam. It has gazillions of possible questions on it. Uh, Tonight uh, we've chosen just to focus on uh, mostly contract stuff within a few sort of uh, other types of ownership and a few other ones sort of tossed in there to kind of give a taste of the breadth of it. Uh, as we do more of these down the road, we'll sort of widen it out and, and keep trying different ones, but uh, this seemed like the, the best place to start, so that's what we're going to start with. So let's uh, let's jump right in. Uh, so I'm just going to run through a series of uh, questions and, and some possible answers, and then we'll talk about uh, kind of... Why, why that answer, why does it make sense, uh, and uh, any sort of pertinent strategy issues that uh, seem to jump out at us as we, as we go along here. So sorry, I'm gonna be reading the questions out just so that we make sure everybody hears uh, exactly the same thing, so I don't mean to be repetitive, but uh, I think just sort of the fastest, easiest way to do it. So let's dive in. Uh, number one, which of the following is the most accurate description of the professional standard of care for an architect? So you note that the standard of care there is bolded uh, because that's an actual legal term. It uh, If you didn't know that, it would sort of look a lot like it's just you know standard and care, like it's just sort of part of a sentence. But in fact, the standard of care is actually a very important aspect of uh, the sort of contractual relationships that you are creating when you sign contracts with a potential owner or contractor or other people. Uh, and so what it's really referring to is what level of service can you reasonably be held to? Uh, And kind of intriguingly, you know, all through school and all the way along, everybody's always talking about, yeah, we're gonna be the best, we're gonna do the coolest, we're gonna be the most interesting. Well, that's great for all your marketing materials, but it doesn't have anything to do with the contract. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it, because how on earth could you uh, do a contractual relationship for being the best at anything, uh, or even being near the best at anything. Uh, That's just not how contracts work, it doesn't really make any sense in in the context, even though if you haven't thought about it before, probably never really sort of noticed it. Um, uh, So what is the standard of care? Well, the standard of care is essentially saying uh, that you're competent. Uh, The whole point of the exam, the whole point of the contracts is that there are competent people out there able to respond to people's needs uh, for architecture, architectural services. Uh, So, okay, Um, then uh, let's take a look at some of the possible answers. Uh, And I'm, just for fun, going to jump straight to C and D to start us off with. So let's take a look at C. So C says, uh, sorry, uh, C says uh, the level of skill and care that the leading professional in the appropriate specialty would employ. Well, I just said that it's about being competent. It's not about being the leading person. It's about being competent. Um, So, uh, what that is telling us is that C can't possibly be the right answer because uh, it's using the terms leading professional. It's going way out on a limb there, uh, and it's uh, talking about um, all these sort of uh, sort of big ideas about uh, how these things could be. Um, uh, you know, we could be the best, we could be the most out there, the the specialty situation. Well, that's not exactly what's going on. Well, let's look at D. Uh, professional. Uh, standard of care is fact-specific and cannot be described except in a specific factual context. Well, D is kind of interesting. It's actually true, but only in a sort of very odd and limited particular way. Uh, It's fact-specific in that, well, how does one say that you're competent? Well, what that really is saying is that uh, if you are an architect who has done work for a client and the client says at the end, ah, I don't like this work, I'm going to sue that, that architect. Uh, and the, the sort of court system or the arbitration process is trying to figure out well, how do we define uh, whether you met the standard of care or not? It is factually specific in the sense that uh, you have to compare it to another similar project by a similar architect in a similar location. Uh, That's the only way that it can make any logical sense. Um, But that's way too specific of a part of the way to kind of get to the real answer. So C and D are definitely not the correct answers. They're just not gonna get us anything interesting. So we can cross those guys right off the list. Um, But uh, um, when we look at A and B, Now, A and B are kind of fascinating um, because uh, they say essentially the same thing, right? So let's read A. The level of skill and care that the average typical person would employ under similar circumstances. Well, that sounds pretty much like what I was saying, except there's a key word here that is gonna kill us, uh, and that is the word typical person. We don't care about any civilians. We only care about architects. So we look at B, the level of of skill and care that the average typical architect similarly situated would employ. That's essentially a direct quote from what the standard of care is. You might have a few more uh, little phrases in there like similarly situated in a similar location in a similar uh, uh, building type, uh, uh, but B is absolutely the sort of most reasonable answer for what the standard of care is. So it's not leading, it's not the best, it's not uh, who can do the most, uh, it's who is the most competent, and not the most, sorry, who is not who's the most competent, but who is competent, uh, and would do essentially the same thing that really any other of the competent architects in that location doing that kind of project would do. So number one, B. Uh, so number two is, uh, uh, During the construction phase of the project, uh, utilizing AIA contract documents, an architect ordinarily, and then we have a bunch of choices. Um, Okay. Thanks. Uh, uh, A, reviews and approves pay requests. That sounds sort of reasonable. Uh, B, approves the construction means, methods, and procedures. Approves the construction means, methods, and procedures. That sounds sort of, uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem quite right. Uh, C. Periodically inspects and supervises the construction. Well, you certainly periodically inspect things, so maybe that's possible. And then D. Coordinates the subcontractors. That one sounds odd, too. So, okay, what's going on here? What are we really talking about? Uh, So, just right off the bat, I'm just going to tell you the answer to this one is A, because it's the most reasonable answer out of uh, of all of them. Um, So, A is the answer, but let's look at B, because B is really the the key to this. Uh, Means and methods is referring to the idea of the actual uh, putting together the process, putting together the uh, the actual uh, building of something, going going forward and actually making the thing. That's all the GC. The GC work is to build it, to, to make it become alive, to, to actually uh, become a thing. The architect's job is to come up with the design intent. So you produce all kinds of work, schematic to drawings, all the way through uh, bid documents and everything, and those are all about creating a design intent. Now you'll hear a few different ways of describing it, I think design intent is sort of the easiest, it's the clearest uh, difference from means and methods. So architect is all about design intent, and also being an agent for the owner, meaning that you actually answer uh, in place of the owner in many situations. Uh, So you can speak for the owner in many situations, not all situations, but in many situations. You have agency for the owner. So those are the two things that are the two main things that the architect is doing, design intent and agency for the owner, helping the owner. Uh, The GC is all about uh, the means and methods, the making of the thing, the scheduling of the making of the thing, all of that whole process part that ends up with a final finished product. Uh, so when you look at B, that's all about means and methods. That is totally not something that the architect should be doing. Uh, and in fact, if you do claim to be doing anything about the means and methods, you suddenly are taking on the liability from the contractor, even if you're talking about the means and methods of something that isn't the thing that goes wrong. Uh, once you've done it, you have claimed it on the project uh, in, in perpetuity until the end of that project. Uh, so uh, as soon as it gets to the insurance companies, they're going to scan and look for uh, any memo or anything like that where it says that, yes, I'm there to approve the means and methods. And if you have signed that or said that uh, somewhere in the, in the written records, that means you're taking all that liability. So it's a really key thing to realize. It's a big difference in the classic scenario for architects. um, And the classic scenario is design bid build. That's sort of the, if it doesn't say design build or fast track or something, that's the way that you should imagine that the question is, uh, that's where the question is aiming. So design bid build is a typical situation. There's an owner, the owner hires an architect, the architect goes through a series of of drawings and and design uh, processes uh, and ends up with uh, a bid package uh, the owner and the architect get together, they come up with a list of bidders, they send out the bid package to the list of bidders. And uh, the bidders then review and uh, put a bunch of bids together. Uh, the owner eventually selects one of the one of the bidders, uh, presumably low bid, but not necessarily. Uh, and that low bidder or that bidder that's been selected now becomes the GC. Um, that's called design, bid, build. You've designed it, then you bid it out, and then somebody's going to build it. Right? So the classic scenario of these things uh, in that setup, the architect design intent, the uh, builder is uh, means and methods. So we look at C and D, let's look at C, periodically inspects and supervises the construction. Well, that one sounds so close uh, that you, know, you certainly do periodically inspect, that's definitely part of your, your process. Uh, but the word supervise is in there, and that is a key one. You absolutely are not supervising the GC. Uh, If you were supervising the GC, that means you're supervising the means and methods, which means you're taking all the liability. Uh, That's not your job, that's their job. And then coordinates subcontractors, clearly that's actually about um, uh, 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 the contractor's uh, project. So the answer on this one, it's the sort of simplest one, reviews and approves pay requests, you don't necessarily do that on every single project, but on most projects, that's one of your roles. You're there to help the owner understand, you're as the agent of the owner, to understand is what the contractor saying a reasonable thing uh, because the presumption is that they are not as sophisticated about this process as you would be. Uh, so that you can look at the, the request for money from the contractor and if they're saying, yes, uh, uh, we're 100% done with... Uh, uh, plumbing and you're looking around and seeing that you know, none of the toilets are installed or none of the sinks work, well, then they're not 100% done with the plumbing and you get to say no, right? That's one of the, the roles that you have to play during construction administration, so that's a, that's definitely the correct answer on the two is A. Alright, so, uh, this one, Number three is actually kind of a kind of an interesting one. This is probably one that most of you have some familiarity with, but I wouldn't be surprised if most of you get it wrong uh, as, a, as a question, because the technical way that you talk about it is actually kind of odd, um, and it's sort of a useful way of understanding it. Once you understand why it's called what it is, or why it's uh, used the way it is, then it all kind of logically makes sense, but um, it's, it can seem a little uh, odd in, in the process. So, okay, three. Which of the following is the best description of mechanics lien? Uh, so, mechanics lien. Well, let's just first dispense with D. Let's take a look at D. A warranty issued directly to an owner by a vendor of mechanical equipment. Mechanics lien has nothing to do with mechanical equipment, it doesn't have anything to do with anything uh, actually mechanical, in fact. Um, I, uh, you know, I knew one time what, uh, where the word mechanics came from. I actually don't remember anymore. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's more about the idea of the lean than it is about anything else. Uh, and so it's not about, uh, anything about mechanical equipment or anything like that. Uh, what a mechanics lean is, is let's say you're a plumber and you've done, uh, uh, $100,000 worth of work on a project, and uh, you, the GC is pushing you to do more work, and you're saying, well, you know, I need to get paid first. You know, we're 100 dollars in here, and the GC says, no, I'm not going to pay you. Uh, and so you stop working, and then the GC just goes and gets another plumber. Um, so what do you do if you're that plumber? How do you, how do you, you know, if the GC is not going to pay you, like how do you get anybody to notice that you need to be paid that $100,000? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to file a mechanics lien, and you're going to put that mechanics lien on the uh, the deed. You're going to go down to like the county courthouse or something like that, and you're going to put that lien onto the project, onto the site, onto the building, uh, you know, some form. It doesn't have to be a finished project. It doesn't have to be an actual building. It can be just the property. Uh, and... Uh, you're essentially saying, wait, before anything else can happen, um, I am owed $100,000. So, okay, let's look at A and B as possible uh, answers. So A, a lawsuit to collect money for construction work performed to improve a property. That sounds pretty much like what I just said, right? Uh, Let's look at B, an ownership interest in a piece of property to the extent of construction work performed to improve it. Well, A certainly sounds right, but it's actually not right. Uh, a mechanics lien is not a lawsuit. Uh, it is, in fact, a way of saying for that, that plumber is essentially saying when they put the mechanics lien on, I didn't get paid $100,000, I should have been paid. Uh, I'm therefore claiming $100,000 worth of ownership of this project. Now, that seems a little funny because it's like, well, where does that get you? Like, you're the you're that plumber, like, so what? You put a piece of paper out in the county courthouse like, what does that mean? Well, it turns out it's actually really handy uh, if you're that, uh, if that plumber, because uh, there's all sorts of times when, let's say you're doing a construction loan. Well, as soon as you go from construction loan to, to translating it into a regular mortgage, or as soon as the developer is trying to sell it to the new tenant, or any, any uh, interaction with the bank, or with the state, or with anybody, uh, they're gonna take a look and make sure that it's a clean deed. And if there's a lien on the deed, they're going to stop the process. And so this is a very uh, useful way of letting the the little guy, in this case the plumber, uh, be able to sort of stop a million-dollar project, $200 million project, because they're owed the $100,000. So B is the correct answer. The mechanics lien is a way to to claim ownership interest in a project to the extent of the work that you've done uh, to improve it. And then uh, presumably before anything can actually happen to that uh, project, before it can get sold again or, uh, you know, go through uh, any other sort of legal uh, process, somebody has to clear the, clear the lien. So the owner is going to go back to the GC and say, Hey, what the heck's going on here? You got you to clear this thing off. And then the GC is going to have to pay the contractor, the, the uh, plumber, um, or maybe the GC runs away, but whatever, uh, the plumber has got to get paid. So the, the owner then has to make a deal with the, with the plumber. Somebody's got to find a way to make that work. Uh, so, Three, uh, the correct answer is B.
2: Which Vanessa got right. Very good. Excellent and job. So did uh, Matt and looks uh, like Megan.
1: thought oh, it was A. Yeah, A is a sort of totally reason. That's what almost everybody would, would answer if they haven't uh, haven't dealt with it before. Uh, but it actually is B. Um, the thing you probably have dealt with a great deal is the waiver of lead, um, and that's when... Uh, you ask to be paid um, and uh, the, you know, whoever, the the title company or the owner or whoever comes up and hands you a check and with one hand they're handing you a check and with the other hand you should be handing them uh, a waiver of lien. And what you're essentially saying with the waiver of lien is I am waiving my right to put a lien on your project uh, for this amount of money because you've just handed me a check. Uh, So that allows them, so you, you get the check and you walk away with your check, Uh, if you didn't give them a waiver of lien, then you could then go put a mechanic's lien on, and they would have no way of proving it, you'd have to wait for the check to clear, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so waivers of lien are sort of part of this process, and that's probably something you've run into before.
2: While we're here, um, going back to question number two, Francesca had a great uh, question. She said, yeah, the, she was sort of a question the architect only inspects at substantial and final completion uh, the architect does not periodically inspect is that correct
1: um, actually that's a very good question um, and it's too specific to the situation to really be able to answer um, so you uh, know in, in in the vast majority of of the kinds of projects that the exam is really talking about something like a Uh, You're doing a high school or you're doing a a small library or something like that. Um, The inspections, if you will, inspections are really, is probably a little too strong a word. It's probably more sort of visits. Um, The visits are probably monthly, um, maybe every two weeks. Sometimes if it's a really complicated project, it might be every week. If it's a seriously complicated project, you might actually have somebody who stays on site and they're there every day. Um, so uh, it can be all kinds of different uh, sets of relationships. And if you're doing something that's like a single-family home, and it's for somebody who's built stuff before, uh, kind of with you in, in the past, you might do it at, uh, you know, at rough-in and then at uh, um, you know, drywall and then at, you know, like at sort of key milestones. So it doesn't have to be like weekly or monthly, but it depends on the scale of the project and the needs of the of the client. Um, but this, the standard built into the contract is that you are there at a set period uh, periodically that would be defined in the contract. So you, maybe you say six visits, or maybe you say monthly visits, or uh, something that would get defined as part of the uh, part of that contract. All right, let's move on to number four. So this one's kind of out uh, out of the blue. Um, this is here just to kind of remind you that there's. Uh, Quite a lot of other types of questions that are that are potentially on this uh, on this exam. So okay, standpipes are. <laughs> how about that? What a weird question. Uh, and not only it's a weird question, but it's also the most annoying question type in my mind. The I I I I I I V V. Um, so we're just going to kind of run through it and start thinking about this thing. Let's see. Uh, So what they are is useful emergencies, located near stairs, wet or dry, always charged by the fire department, always dry. And then you have a bunch of uh, choices down at the end of which ones can can those be. Well, right off the bat, one of the things you should notice is that three and five, wet or dry, and then always dry, are clearly anti each other. So it can't be both three and five. Uh, And so from a strategy standpoint, you have sort of two ways of going. Now this one's actually, if you know what standpipes are, it's actually a fairly simple one, but um, uh, if, you, if, you, if you know or don't know, uh, it's, sometimes it's easier. Instead of going through everything in detail, you find those little moments. So you're always scanning, looking for those moments so that you can then cross off a couple of possible answers. Because if you're guessing between two, it's way better than guessing between four. I, I know that's sort of obvious, but it's worth saying. So three and five can't uh, go together. Uh, So we look at B. Well, B can't possibly be the answer. So uh, B is out, um, and then the question really becomes, is it A, and therefore 3 is uh, correct, or is it C or D, Uh, and if it's uh, therefore 5 is correct, and if it's C or D, uh, then the real question is 4, is 4 correct? So we've now, instead of looking at all of these things, we've now sort of narrowed it down to just a couple of very specific questions. But uh, given that, we're going to reverse back and actually talk about standpipes for a second. So a standpipe um, is uh, something I'm sure everybody has uh, dealt with in the past in some way or another, but it's worth just kind of running through it real quick. Uh, the classic example of a standpipe, there are various types of uses of standpipes, but the, when, you, when somebody refers to a standpipe, the classic example is, imagine you're a firefighter. You're going to run into the building. Uh, your buddy is going to plug in one end of the hose to the fire hydrant out in the street. You've got the other end of the hose, and let's say the enunciator panel says it's on the seventh floor. You're going to run up the, seventh, the stairs to the seventh floor carrying a full... Uh, hose filled with water, uh, water spilling all over the place, people are in the building trying to get out the same stair, they're tripping over the hose. Uh, it's just sort of a huge mess. You're carrying a really heavy hose also up uh, all those flights of stairs. So that just doesn't make any sense. So, okay, what's the standpipe do? Well, a standpipe essentially takes the place of part of the hose. So instead of attaching the hose to the fire hydrant, you attach the fire hydrant to the Siamese connection in the street. Uh, So the Siamese connection is those little parts of a pipe that poke out of the front of the building. uh, And I can connect directly from the uh, fire hydrant uh, to that uh, that pipe that pokes out to the street, to the front of the street. Uh, It's almost always to the front, doesn't have to be, but it's almost always to the front. Uh, And I can use a fire hydrant, I could use a pumper truck, I could use any number of different uh, sources. But I can then take that fire hydrant and fill that pipe with water. Well, that pipe is then going to go into the building and then up and touch every floor. So that the uh, firefighter runs into the building, runs up the stairs, uh, whatever floor it was. I said, let's say seventh floor. Uh, they run out the seventh floor. They attach their hose. What up to that point is a, a nice light dry hose. Attach it to the, to the standpipe up at the seventh floor and then fight the fire right there directly, having filled that standpipe with water from uh, the uh, fire hydrant. So standpipes are incredibly useful in a fire emergency. They, they uh, uh, kind of speed the process, they make it much more sort of believable that uh, people can get out safely and the water can get to the places it's supposed to go. Um, you can also use stand standpipes in a lot of different ways. They can be part of the sprinkler system. They can uh, be tied into uh, uh, systems up on the roof like uh, in an Older city, you see a lot of old uh, big old uh, water tanks up on the roofs. Those are often tied to um uh, so that the standpipes are charged with water from, their, from the building itself. Uh, so the fire department doesn't even have to uh, um, charge the, the, the standpipe. So uh, it's this kind of amazing and useful and great uh, sort of very simple system uh, to, to get uh, the firefighters the water they need at the location they need. So, okay, let's run through some the possible answers. So useful emergencies, absolutely useful emergencies. Located near the stairs, that sounds very odd, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, but in fact it is almost always 99.99% of the time is going to be located near the stairs. And why is that? Because if you're the firefighter, coming out of the stairwell on the seventh floor ready to fight that fire you don't want to spend 20 minutes searching for where the standpipe is it wants to be either right there in the stair or right there as you turn as you come out of that stair Uh, so it's going to be very very close there the other reason it's probably right near the stairs because the stair goes all the way from the top to the bottom and so it's not like you're putting a pipe through the middle of a building that you then have to figure out how to move around if the tenants change or anything like that Uh, so it's almost always directly located right there near the stairs Uh, Wet or dry, Uh, absolutely it can be wet or dry. They can be charged, filled with water. Like I said, uh, an older one might have a connection to a water tank on the roof, um, but often they're dry. Um, So wet or dry is absolutely true. Four, uh, always charged by the fire department? No, I just said you can have it uh, be from a water tank or it could be from any number of other sources. Is it usually by the fire department? Yes, it is usually. So here's one of those tricky words, the word always. Whenever you see always or never or um, absolute or must, uh, always be careful of, uh, of those terms. Definitely take a sort of a second look at those things because uh, there are probably examples, uh, even if they're relatively limited, where that's not not the case. And then always dry, we just said on three, that yes, it can be either charged with water or it can be empty and then it gets filled with water. So the correct answer here is A. Um, Because uh, uh, that's going to be the one that is uh, not going to do the two always ones at the end. It's just going to focus on the three that we feel really comfortable with.
2: Awesome. So Megan, Matt, Robert, Charles, and Vanessa got it right.
1: Excellent job. Clean sweep. Okay.
2: Uh, One question here, though. Yep. Jake goes back to, I believe, question three, and he wants to confirm. So a waiver of lean what happened before a contractor placed a mechanic's lien on a property, is that correct?
1: No, the waiver, well, yes, but uh, a, a waiver of lien is, um, uh, so let, let's say that particular example of the plumber who was hundred grand in, um, they say, hey, you got to pay me the 100000 and the GC says, okay, here's a check for 100000 Before he, or in the process of handing over the check for the 100000 the plumber is going to give the GC a waiver of lien. Uh, which is gonna say, all right, you're paying me the hundred grand. I can't, I will not, I, I am promising that I will not try to put a mechanics lien for this hundred thousand dollars onto this property because you've just given me the check. So I've been I've been paid, I'm waiving my right to put a lien on it for this moment, for this amount on this situation. So that's a waiver of lien and then you'll often also see a final waiver of lien which is where you say, okay yes, I've been paid all the way through everything. Project's done, and I'm—I've been paid everything I was owed, so I'm giving you my final waiver of lien. Therefore, I will not put—I'm—I'm I'm waiving my right to put uh, a mechanics lien onto this project, and that's a way that everybody kind of keeps the keeps track and makes sure everybody's on target. Okay. Good question. Okay, number five. Um, okay, let's see. Under the A201 General Conditions. Uh, Which one of the following is not one of the architect's duties during construction? So, okay. Reviewing samples and other submittals from the contractor. Responding to contractor questions regarding the design. Adjudicating disputes between the owner and the contractor. Making site visits to ensure that the construction is proceeding in accordance with the contract documents. So those are kind of interesting ones, right? Um, Because they all seem plausible and they all seem like maybe dangerous or something. Um, but the question here is which one of these is not the architect's duty? Uh, reviewing samples and other submittals from the contractor? Absolutely. That's one of the main things. Like you say, we need uh, you know um, a, a, uh, a plum-colored brick. Well, they're going to show you some samples of plum-colored bricks. Uh, and you've got to choose one and you have to go through it and do you know, That's part of the process. So A is absolutely something you're going to do. B, responding to contractor questions regarding the design. Yeah, that's what uh, it's, uh, um, an RFI, a request for information. That's where you know the drawings may be very clear for most things, but there's bound to be something that they just don't understand, or they just want to make sure that they understand exactly what you mean. Uh, you know, is the uh, smoke detector supposed to align with uh, the signage, or is it supposed to be offset from the signage? Uh, you know, those kinds of things which may not have been detailed fully in a, a smaller uh, set of drawings. At some point, somebody's got to place that smoke detector and they may say, hey, I need some information regarding the design. So RFIs, request for information, absolutely part of your process. Uh, C and, and then D are kind of the two remaining ones that might be at issue. So adjudicating disputes between the owner and the contractor. Um, This is a fascinating one because, in fact, yes, as the architect, you are there partly to adjudicate disputes between the owner and the contractor. Now, this has always been sort of the case. Uh, It's always been one of the roles of the architects uh, is to sort of be the the middle person and be the reasonable person and try to make sure everything goes smoothly. Um, But in 2007, uh, the AIA contracts actually – Uh, built in the idea of the initial decision-maker, the IDM, and that is you, the architect, and so if there's a dispute between the owner and the contractor, the first place they're supposed to go is to the architect, and the architect, in this kind of interesting way, right, I mean, you have a contract with the owner, so you have allegiances and agency with the owner, but you're also professional, which puts you in a different category, right, you are there to uh, uphold the laws of the land, to protect the public. You're there to do a whole bunch of other things that aren't about your contract. So in this case, uh, what your what your job is, is to sort of put the I'm a neutral person here hat on and then try to adjudicate the, the, uh, the dispute. Um, so that is absolutely something that would be uh, part of your duties uh, during the uh, construction administration of a project.
2: Francesca said defy IDM again?
1: Uh, the initial decision maker, which is a very odd, uh, un, not very good handle term. Um, and it's literally only in the most recent uh, contracts. The contracts are rewritten every 10 years. So 2007 was the last one. Uh, 2017 will be the new ones. And the new ones are going to be really fascinating. This is another time for another uh, off in the distance. We'll talk about this at some other point. But um, how they're going to deal with all the Revit models and all that stuff, which is kind of changing everything in terms of schematic designs and all that. um, So the 2017's are going to be really fascinating. Right now we're working on 2007's. You'll see that a lot of people actually still use the 1997's because they just got used to them and they liked them, so they just kept them. Um, But the exam will be uh, focused on the 2007 ones. And they're pretty similar, 1997 and 2007, pretty similar. But there's a few things, like the IDM got added in. So regarding adjudicating disputes, because I know there was one question about this as well, just because you say you make your final decision, it doesn't mean that everybody has to like bow down to the god of the architect, right? They still could be, they can still say, I don't, I don't agree with you. I want to take it to a higher, uh, higher authority. And then what that higher authority is depends on the contracts and where you are, what, what part of the country you are and a series of other uh, issues. A lot of that is sort of local uh, law and local code, but there are four basic stages to adjudicating uh, disputes. Like I said, IDM is sort of the most sort of straightforward, simple. Right there on the site, you kind of figure it out. Uh, maybe you do written proposals from each side, uh, and then the architect writes a formal memo that says, "Yes, I I believe it is this, and here's why." Um, so that's IDM, fairly simple and straightforward. No no other players involved. And then the next step up would be mediation, and mediation is where uh, the entities discor- to decide to bring in somebody and it has to be a mutually agreed upon somebody who is a sort of outside, third-party person who kind of comes in, steps in, and makes suggestions, like reviews all the information, uh, is sort of the reasonable third-party person who uh, can review all the information and have sort of the authority um, of a kind of sage person in the process. So they have a fair amount of actual authority, um, but it's not as much authority as, say, a lawsuit or something. Um, you can still challenge it, uh, usually, uh, to a higher uh, uh, situation. But um, it's still it's a it's a big deal. It's a lot. Of, it's a big process. It's you're bringing in outside people now, so it costs money. So you have to really want to uh, like it. It can cost people a lot of money to go through a mediation process. So IDM mediation, and then the next level would be arbitration. So arbitration is very similar to mediation, except you're essentially saying, all right, this isn't just some third party person who is like a particularly trusted person in the industry. What we're saying is this person is actually, or this panel of people, is actually essentially like a court. They're acting as a judge and jury, um, and they have a specific legal weight in the process. And The reason they have legal weight is because when you signed your contract, you said, yes, we will you know, abide by the arbitration of this or that. Um you also can have in your contract we will abide by the mediation as well. So like that could be part of the contract. So IDM, mediation, arbitration. And then the final one is litigation. So litigation is, yeah, this isn't some third party thing. This is an actual court case. This is somebody actually going into the the justice system, uh, uh, civil, presumably, um, but going into the justice system. uh, And you actually have judges and potentially juries, depending on what kind of uh, case it is uh, and what state you're in. Um, uh, Backlog might take uh, months or years or even decades to kind of get through a process. Uh, and will cost everybody, especially the taxpayers, a whole lot of money uh, and time. So uh, if you can keep out of litigation, the whole point of arbitration and mediation and IDM is to try to keep it out of that sort of god-awful litigation situation. Um, so you're trying to, uh, if you can do it right on the site um, with the, the architects, great. If not, we go to mediation, um, and if not, we go to arbitration, and then and eventually it goes to litigation. Uh, not all situations can do all of them, um, but, uh, but that's the sort of the order that you would uh, you would sort of understand them in. So uh, A, B, and C are all sort of true. So that means D, which sort of sounded pretty reasonable, uh, must be the actual correct answer here, which is the one that is not an architect's duty. But let's read D again. Making site visits to ensure that the construction is proceeding in accordance with the contract documents. Man, that sounds so good because you're making site visits, right? You're going to visit the site to sort of check things out. But there's two problems with this. One is the word ensure, uh, which is like the word always or must. Um, You're saying, I am uh, making sure, I'm absolutely 100% positive that things are going according to the contract documents. We'll think about also what the word, is. this phrase according to the contract, like what does that even mean? Like if you think about it, uh, let's say you're 30% way through the through the project, well, does it say somewhere on the contract documents what it should look like at 30%? Well, no, it doesn't, right? So you can't say, yes, I am ensuring that it's uh, in a construction, you know, it's in, in accordance with the uh, contract documents because there's nothing to judge it against. So uh, ensure and the pr- sort of problem with the wording of that is definitely a problem with D and that's why it makes it the correct answer. Um, so one other thing to say about uh, about that is um, that the way that you would say D to make it be correct is that you're making site visits in order to uh, um, inform the owner that the, uh, that it seems like the project will meet the design intent when it is complete. There's nothing so far that I've seen that would lead me to think that when the project is complete, it won't meet the design, design intent. So what you're saying is at the end, I think it's like we may only be at 30% right now, but nothing i have seen yet tells me that at the end it won't be correct. Right? Um, you're not responsible for deciding when the slab goes in or when the windows go in. That's the GC's responsibility. So you can't be sort of deciding what the order of these things are So uh, you can, however, say, well, they've done a bunch of work and um, they didn't put a foundation in for a piece of the building that's going to happen later, and there's no way for them to go in and put the foundation in without ripping out stuff they've just finished. So I can reasonably go ahead and say to the owner, something's not right here. This isn't going to meet the design intent when the project is at the end. Um, So that's an example of how you would word that. Now that's way more wordy and ridiculous than you would probably actually do on a site in a real person with real contractors. But you should understand why that's the meaning, why that's the way it's worded, uh, because it is meaningful to kind of, uh, to start speaking erroneously about these things. You can actually set up very, very big problems for uh, your firm and for yourself. So, answer to that one, D. Five is D, uh, because of the word insure and the way it's written.
2: Um, Dan asks, what about project timeline? Can we say that this doesn't look like it'll be completed on time? Can you comment on that? And then um, lastly, Tim Marie's asking me one more time, difference between arbitration and litigation.
1: Okay, um, so what about the timeline? Like, uh, yes, because, uh, the timeline is actually part of the GC's contract with the owner. When the, 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 there's like three or four things that are part of that contract. One of them is that they're saying, yes, they will actually build the thing that you drew. And so the that set of drawings and documents will be dated and have a specific, so that's in the contract. Um, and there's a few other things in the country, but one of the, ma- the price is obviously in the contract between the GC and the owner. Uh, but the other big thing is the timeline is in the, in the contract now, because con- uh, um, projects, construction projects are so complicated. There's so many different factors involved The timelines often are just sort of, well, they are what they are. Everybody wants to get it done as sort of reasonably fast as possible, but things happen. And so it's not always, something that you spend a lot of time worrying about because you know, what are you going to do about the weather or whatever. But there's a lot of projects where the timeline is actually really important. Like if you're doing school or something like things gotta be open by uh, the time the kids arrive. Right? So, uh, timelines, the schedules can be very much an important part of it. And yes, It is reasonable, um, since that is actually part of the end of the 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 design intent. At the end of of their contract, uh, is reasonable to comment on it uh, and to to say something. However, um, it is also very important not to take control of the the um, timeline. You absolutely do not want to be telling anybody to stop work. You absolutely do not want to be telling anybody to um, uh, that this will not work or you must you know, start doing this now, you know, you should stop doing that and start doing this. Um, once you start saying it like that, you're now in control of that schedule. And when the school kids show up and the building isn't done, uh, they're all going to try to sue the contractor and the contractor is going to turn and look at you and say, hey, you took control of the schedule. It's on you, right? So you absolutely want to be very, very careful about talking about the, uh, schedule and timeline. Okay, back to the arbitration versus litigation issue. Um, the arbitration, is you're not uh, involving the standard court system. Um, it's its own uh, setup, so it's a legal setup, but it's, uh, it's more like you're doing it through uh, like a, a law office than you're doing it um, uh, through the court. Now, the courts may mandate arbitration, so you go into court, and then they send you to arbitration, and then you go to this third-party thing and and do it. So they can be related to to the courts, Um, but it's a third-party. It's not a civil court. Uh, Litigation refers to an actual uh, judge, potentially jury, uh, uh, lawyer's litigated uh, process. All right, let's uh, jump on to... Number six here, I hope you're enjoying my very deep, sexy voice with my uh, my cold here. <laughs> um, sorry about that, hope, hope we can understand my words. Number six, uh, in a typical construction project, who are the proper parties to sign the A2 on general conditions? So this is sort of a classic, ridiculous uh, question that um, is meant to just screw you. Um, so here's the deal, design, bid, build, three main entities. There's the owner, there's the architect, and there's the contractor. The owner and the architect have a contract and that's uh, typically the B-101. So the B-101 is the uh, owner architect um, agreement. The owner and the general contractor have uh, an agreement and that's the A-101. So the A's are all contractor related, uh, the B's are all architect related, Now, why they didn't make the A's architect-related, I see A for architect always seems odd to me, but whatever, Uh, the B's are the architect-related, the A's are the contractor-related, and there is no contract between the architect and the contractor, Um, so that's kind of odd if you think about it, right, because there's all these roles that they play with each other. Uh, There are things that the contractor asks of the architect, there are things that the architect asks of the uh, contractor, so there's a whole bunch of uh, roles of back and forth that happen between them, and um, so they must be defined somehow. Like, how, how do they do all that without having a contract with each other? Well, the answer is the A21 General Conditions. So the A21 uh, is this document that, for all the main uh, design, bid, build, especially, um, although even the other ones, uh, all the main contracts, it could be the consultant contracts, it could be subcontract contract, contract uh, all of those contracts, all will reference in the A201. So the A201 is actually part of everybody's contracts. And so it says all the stuff that would be way too wordy in a regular contract. So it talks about, you know, what does it mean? Uh, uh, you know, what does periodic mean? And what does this mean? What does that mean? Um, you know, uh, uh what's the relationship how, you know, how do we define the relationship in this setting between uh, the architect and the contractor and between the contractor and the architect all of that stuff is defined in the general conditions there's a few other things the supplementary conditions some other stuff that also get uh, um, some of that work in there too but the A201 is that main the main one that does all of that work and so nobody d no one signs the A201 Um, But everybody includes it in their contract because when you sign the B101 or you sign the A101, you are referencing in the A201. So it's involved for everybody, but uh, it's a separate document, but it's referenced in, uh, but nobody actually signs it. So there you go. Trick question. Classic trick question.
2: Robert wants to ask, um, does this not change if the GC hired the architect's?
1: Yes. Um, if the GC hired the architect, then it's a, a, a very, very different set of contracts. Um, if the GC hires the architect, you're, it depends on, on what you actually mean by Lexus is like three or four different ways that could be, but it might be design build. Like it may be, there's an owner and uh, uh, contractor arrangement. Uh, they have a, a design build, Um, contract with each other. So the contractor is then hiring his own architect. So you're not the agent of the owner anymore. You're now the agent of the contractor. And so everything is actually different. It's a different set of uh, contracts altogether. Um, and And that's why I was saying earlier that if it doesn't say, assume it's design, bid, build, if it does say design, build, or fast track, or construction manager, or any of those kinds of things, then you want to start really being careful about, well, that's a different situation. There's probably more to this story Um, and start looking for, why are they saying it about that particular contract? Okay, number seven, a property survey contains an error that the architect does not discover, thereby causing the architect to design a building that extends beyond the property lines. Under the A201 general conditions, who is responsible for the cost of the corrective measures? Um, I certainly hope that it is D, the neighbor who, uh, into whose property the building extends, but that would be ridiculous because um, that's just crazy, uh, so it's definitely not D. So the question is, is it the contractor, is it the architect, is it the owner? Well, the answer here is, is it absolutely the owner. Um, now, the owner may not be terribly happy about that, but here's the deal, and this is why it's an important thing to understand. Uh, when a project starts, the owner comes to you and says, I'm ready to do a project. Here's, here's what I want to do, i.e. here's my program. Uh, here's the survey, uh, i.e. here's the site. Uh, here's the geotechnical information. Again, here's the site, so what's the, what's the soil like? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and here's the environmental information. Again, what's the, what's, uh, the actual site like? Your job is then to pull together design intent and to do all those other things. You're gonna get civil engineers, you're gonna get the uh, mechanical engineers, you're gonna get structural engineers, you're gonna be the architect, all that stuff that you're gonna kind of roll forward with. Um, Well that's great. They have given you that information. If that information is wrong, that's what they gave you. It's therefore on the owner. Like That can't be your responsibility because they gave you that information. The key here, though, is one of the things that happens all the time is that owners say, oh, you know, I don't know any surveyors. Why don't you call a surveyor for me? Which seems like you're just trying to give good service and be a nice guy. Well, that's absolutely the absolute wrong thing to do uh, because you're now taking that liability. And this, uh, the answer to this question uh, would actually be C if you had done that. You would be taking the liability on all of those issues. But it says it's according to the documents, so therefore it's the owner. All right, move on to eight. A construction worker is hurt in an unshored trench uh, on a construction site in which all of the companies are working under AIA form contracts. Which of the following is true? The worker may sue the architect who, uh, and who wins will depend on the architect's actions at the job site. The worker cannot sue the architect successfully because there is no contract between them the primary defendant in the worker's lawsuit is usually the worker's employer who has primary responsibility for its worker's safety. Or D, the claim must be resolved in arbitration or mediation rather than litigation in court because the aia form contracts contain mandatory arbitration and mediation provisions. Well, D is certainly true to the extent that uh, contracts do contain those elements, the arbitration or mediation uh, provisions. But if you look back at the question, the question is a construction worker. It doesn't say that there's a dispute between the entity of a subcontractor and a general contractor or the general contractor and and the owner or anything like that. This is not a contractual uh, set of relationships. This is some guy was standing there and the floor fell in uh, and he got hurt. Of course he can sue. He can sue anybody, right? So could you. You could fall on a job site and something goes wrong, right? you can sue. Somebody can come to your office or your house, trip on the stairs, and they can sue you, right? That's, we're a litigious, litigious society. Um, that's certainly their uh, option. They can do that. So um, while D sounds sort of uh, like it has um, a kind of seriousness to it, It is in fact not possible for that to be the correct answer. Uh, And then the same would be true um, if you look at C, the primary defendant in the worker's lawsuit is usually the worker's employer who has primary responsibility for its worker safety. Well, first of all, who really cares because that doesn't really apply. Like you can sue whoever the hell you want to sue. Doesn't mean you win, but you can sue anybody. Uh, The other thing to say is that's actually not even necessarily true, right? If I'm, again, the plumber on the site it might be the GC that has my primary uh, safety responsibility, uh, or even some entity that's actually there specifically to provide safety on a job site. Um, so, this, so the C is definitely not it. Um, and then we look back at uh, A and B. Let's look at B, the worker cannot sue the architect successfully because there is no contract between them. Well, there wasn't any contract between the guy that fell on your stairs uh, and you either. They still sued you, uh, so that Definitely isn't it. So it really comes down to A. And if you think about it, A makes a t- ton of sense. The worker may sue the architect, and who wins will depend on what the architect's actions were on that job site. So what that's saying is, if you've been walking around the job site saying, you should put a handrail over there, and this thing's dangerous over here, you should fix that, or this, uh, this uh, electrical wire, you're going you're gonna to hurt somebody, that thing's a live wire, you should do something about that. What you have essentially done by walking around the site saying those things is saying, yes, I am in charge of all the safety on the site. And so when something goes wrong, you're still in charge. Uh, those are being in charge of the safety in the site is part of the means and methods. That's part of the contractor's job. But if you have claimed it uh, and therefore your actions on the site, if you have claimed that uh, that job of being the safety by, by calling things out, Uh, then you could actually uh, lose that suit. Um, If you've done it by the book, then you won't lose that suit and the worker will hopefully find some other place to get their their cash money. Um, This is one of those ones I'm sure everybody's, things are going through everybody's heads, well what if I see a really dangerous situation? It won't ever be that great, like it'll be set up, the question will be set up in such a way that you won't be tricked. It'll be a clear situation that you either have liability with it or don't.
2: All right, how about nine? Let's talk about nine.
1: So construction drawings uh, are typically inclusive of, and then we have a bunch of different things here. Full performance specifications. Details fully showing all pertinent information shown in one place but referenced in multiple sheets. Uh, Shop drawings bound in after structural but before MPE drawings, so mechanical, plumbing, and electrical drawings. Demo and landscape drawings prior to the architectural drawings. Schematic building sections with references and notes. So these are all in here to sort of kind of uh, try to throw you off, essentially. The the deal here is um, some of these sound right, but they're actually not right. Some of them sound wrong, but they actually are right. Uh, So just super fast, let's run through it. Uh, Full performance specifications. Performance specs, um, most projects in the United States are not performance specs. Most of them are more of a descriptive spec. So if you think of the specs that you've done before, they're probably doing something like saying, okay, we want to put in carpet here's three choices of carpet that uh, you can choose from and that way the contractor has a little bit of range but they're choosing from these three choices. A performance spec is where you say we want the carpet to be this strong, have this kind of backing, be made from this kind of material, find a good one essentially. So uh, it's a very different approach and uh, there's a bunch of reasons why you might want to do it. The idea is that you can get lower prices because it gives much more flexibility to the contractor but it is not something that is specifically done um, most of the time. you're in Europe, as, uh, parts of Germany do uh, performance, specs, performance specs all the time, and there are aspects of performance specs that are done all the time in the United States, but it's not something that's happening all the time. So uh, full performance specifications are not typical uh, in, in the United States. So uh, I, the first one there, is not part of it. Um, and then details fully showing all pertinent information shown in one place, but referenced in multiple sheets. Um, the, 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 thing that, the issue that I have with this one would be the word all, um, but, uh, but this one is essentially correct. Um, what this is saying is there's a bunch of pertinent information in order to get a point across, and we put it someplace. So maybe it's a door schedule, maybe it's a detail about how the flashing works, um, but that information shows up in the right place and it shows up once. That's a key part of how NCARB and AIA think you should be doing your drawings. So two is absolutely uh, true of what things should be typically inclusive of. Um, Now, a little aside about that: uh, every project I've ever done, um, I've had a situation where I stood on the job site and uh, saw somebody doing something, and I said, and they asked me a question, and I said, well, what does it say on the drawings? And they say. Oh, the drawings. Yeah, yeah. Let me go see if I can find the drawings. Um, and uh, in that process, you realize really you're only going to put everything in one location on a set of drawings. Um, you're not going to like actually give it, make it easier for people to find information. So everybody does this a little differently, but that's not the point. The point is the exam is about how you're supposed to do it. the a technical way you're supposed to do it. Uh, any measurement, any any dimension, is supposed to be in one location, in one location only. Uh, all the specific information in one location, one location only. There's so a few caveats to that. Um, some overall dimensions often you put those on multiple sheets so that people can reference from one sheet to another easily. Um, but essentially, uh, everything goes in one spot. Three shop drawings bound in after structural. Shop drawings are actually not part of the construction drawings. They are part of the overall. Uh, set of documentation, um, but they are not your drawings. They're uh, stuff that is given to you, so they are not bound into the set uh, until the very, very end, but that's uh, that, that would actually be at the very end. So three is not true. Uh, demo and landscape drawings prior to architectural. Yeah. The, the first sheet will always be the title sheet, which is technically an architectural sheet. Uh, but then after the first sheet then comes, uh, demo and landscaping and civil and a couple of other things potentially, depending if you, if you have them, uh, then comes the architectural set, then structural, then MPE, then fire protection, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, uh four is actually correct. And then five, schematic building sections and references with references and notes. That sounds sort of weird, like why schematic? This is, you know, this is construction drawings, why would they be schematic? Well, it turns out that actually that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. The, the sections uh, are really meant to be essentially uh, an index sheet for where all your other pieces of information are. Um, so they're there to do two things. One is to show you the sort of general volumetric sets of relationships and also to say, oh, yeah, there's an interesting thing happening here at the parapet. Go look at, uh, you know, sheet uh, A35 uh, to, to find out more about that, right? So it's a place where you can send people to specific locations. So uh, 5V uh, is absolutely correct. Uh, it's a place for references and notes uh, with schematic uh, building sections. Um, so that puts us at, uh, what, two... Five, four and five, which would be uh, D.
2: So it looks like we got, uh, I got another clean sweep on this one. Um, ben has an interesting question. He asks, this format of IIII, I, 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 uh, is that still something that, uh, is that a format that they still use? He thought that maybe that's not used anymore.
1: Yeah, they, they've started to phase it out. Um, Uh, and they now have some where they're filling the blanks and they have some other ones that are uh, kind of similar along those lines, so it's a more open uh, set of possibilities. Um, Last I knew, they hadn't taken them all out. Now, maybe, maybe they have finally done that, um, but uh, they, you know they have a giant pool of questions and they slowly uh, change them out. Uh, and so last I knew, they were still some of these questions uh, were were still there. But also, I actually think even if it's not uh, the direct question type um, that you get, I, I think it's a useful. Way to start looking at like how do how do you strategize through the kinds of information that you get and and how do you compare this to that so they're I think they're useful from the standpoint of kind of forcing you to think through how these questions kind of get asked um, but yeah they will eventually be uh, completely gone
2: and then um, Jordan asked for a little clarification on the uh, so uh, I there, full performance specifications is questions so are the specs part of the drawings this is his question.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, in, in that case, I mean, it's a little – the construction drawings are being used – that term is being used a little loosely, um, but if you actually said uh, um, the construction set, um, uh, then the specs would definitely be part of it. Construction drawings, that's a very good uh, question. I think it's a, a – you, you could play that either way, so they would probably be more specific, um, but uh, if it was con- the construction set or the contract documents, then it would absolutely include – the specifications. Okay, number 10. Uh, which of the following is not part of a zoning analysis for a property? The use, FAR, easements, building heights. Uh, so first one you gotta make sure is, you know, use is pretty straightforward, that means you know, is it a commercial use, is it a residential use, etc. Uh, FAR is floor area ratio. Um, it's not always called floor area ratio everywhere in the country, but I believe the exam still uses that term. Um, it's called FAR most places, um, uh, and that idea is essentially a way to control scale of a project uh, by saying, okay, if the site is say uh, 1,000 uh, square feet, which would be very tiny, but let's say it's 1,000 square feet, uh, and the FAR was one, that means that you have the total the total uh, square foot ability to build a 1,000 square feet of building because the FAR was one, so the floor area ratio. So it's the uh, area of the floor to the area of the site in a ratio. So if you have an FAR of 20, that means you can build a whole lot, right? You can build a skyscraper on that site. If you have an FAR of 0.2, that means you're going to have to have an awful lot of open land around your building. So FAR absolutely is part of a zoning analysis. Use is absolutely part of a zoning analysis. Uh, You know, can I put, um, if I have a residential district, can I put the um, uh, hazardous waste center uh, in it? Well, no, because the use doesn't fit to the zoning analysis. Uh, So then the question becomes easements and building heights. Building heights are kind of interesting. They aren't always directly listed. In fact, um, uh, some places do it only through FAR, but essentially that's their way of uh, regulating building heights and it'll say that's their way of regulating building heights. So building heights, uh, certainly part of zoning analysis. Easements, but easements seems like that, that should be part of the zoning analysis. The trick here is the word zoning analysis. Um, you're not saying site analysis, you're saying zoning analysis. Um, and the easements are an interesting little sort of side part about all this stuff, which is it is not part of the zoning code. An easement is a contract between, uh, um, different entities and the easement rides on the deed. So for example, let's say I have a, um, Electrical line easement going through a property—that uh, is um, something where I can't—I can't, I can't say—or let's say let's use a different one. Let's say uh, somebody wants to put a driveway because they can't get to their property uh, with a, to the street. And so we give them, we, we make a deal with them. We say, all right, yeah, you give us uh, uh, twenty-five thousand dollars, and we'll let you build a driveway through our property onto to, to get to your property. So we would be essentially giving them an easement. Uh, to be able to use part of our property. It doesn't mean they own the property, just they have the, the right to use it. Um, well, that's great, but then if uh, if that wasn't done correctly, if it wasn't actually like a true easement where it went and rode on the deed, uh, then let's say I like turn around the next day and sell the property. And so I walk away with 25 grand and the next owner is like, well, I don't want you driving across my property. But if it is part of the deed, then uh, when I sell the property, I'm selling it with that easement. So a site analysis would include all of these things, including the easements. Um, Hopefully most of the time they would show up on the surveys because the surveyor would have uh, uh, done a a review of uh, the deed. Um, They don't always, so you gotta be a little careful. Uh, but a site analysis would include all of them, a zoning analysis would include uh, A, B, and D, so C would be the one that uh, doesn't fit there. Eleven, during a walkthrough of the construction site of an adaptive reuse structure, you notice the 9-inch square floor tiles that have asbestos in them. You therefore, okay, suggest encapsulation. Well, encapsulation is probably exactly the right thing to do, Um, but really you're going to start telling people what to do about uh, potentially hazardous materials. Uh, You may know a fair amount about it, but you are not an expert at it. Um, So uh, while it's probably the right choice uh, because you don't really want to necessarily rip it out because that's just going to put all the asbestos out into the air. Uh, So encapsulating it, meaning putting a new floor over it and make it so that it's very hard for anybody to actually get anywhere near that uh, asbestos. Um, So while a nice idea, Definitely not the correct answer. You're not gonna suggest anything to anybody. Uh, B, get the GC to remove the material ASAP before someone gets hurt. Well, again, that's exactly the wrong thing, right? Because you are, first of all, telling the the GC to do something illegal, probably. Um, but also, uh, you're going to start pulling that material out. You're just going to be putting that asbestos up into the air. Uh, maybe in the end, that's the right choice because it's better to get, get it out of the way, but it's not something you would do just, uh, on a, on a, on a whim. Um, so A and B are not correct. Uh, C tell the subcontractor in that area to stop work. Um, while that may feel like a good thing to do to make sure that you're not, uh, letting somebody work in a, in a dangerous place. Uh, As we said before, it's not your place to tell anybody to stop work. That's the job of the GC. Now, you can have a discussion with the the GC uh, or the owner and say, look, you know, I'm I'm nervous about this. This looks like uh, it's possibly asbestos, Um, and I'm going to be writing a note that says, I think it's asbestos you probably should have. Uh, an environmental uh, evaluation done um, and hopefully that would trigger the GC to say, Hey, maybe I better get that, that subcontract out of there, but you're not supposed to tell any subcontractor to either start or stop working. So the correct answer, D, tell the owner, there might be an issue with asbestos. All right. 12. Which one of the following kinds of insurance pays for damage to the work under construction, regardless of whether or not the injured party was negligent? So uh, we have builder's risk, uh, professional liability, general liability, and then none of the above. Um, The one that you're probably most familiar with uh, being in the industry is professional liability insurance. That's uh, often referred to as... uh, omissions, and I'm kind of blanking, I'm sorry, blanking on the way they've uh, errors and omissions, thanks, sorry. Um, uh, and that's actually uh, a uh, fairly expensive, but a very, very useful uh, insurance to have, um, and in fact, you can't even do a lot of projects without having that insurance, um, and that insurance is absolutely, um, uh, it is absolutely important who is negligent. If you are negligent, then the provider of the professional liability insurance is gonna pay uh, for what happens. If you were not negligent, then your insurance company is not gonna pay. Whoever was negligent is going to pay. General liability insurance, C, is uh, essentially liability insurance that any company might have. So uh, if you're working in an architecture office, I'll bet you have general liability insurance, but it doesn't have anything to do with any of the construction process. It's just like uh, somebody's driving to the job site and they crash the car or a client walks in and trips over the rug uh, on their way into the conference room and and, uh, there's some problem. That's what general liability insurance is for. So that's just a general business liability uh, um, uh, insurance system. Builder's risk is actually exactly what uh, 12 is talking about. Builder's risk is uh, it would be very difficult for anybody to ever do anything Uh, ever build anything if you didn't have builder's risk insurance out there. So that's where you're going to say, all right, we're about to go forward, we're about to build something, the owner's going to get builder's risk insurance. Sometimes the contractor gets it, but generally it's the owner who gets it. Uh, And the builder's risk insurance uh, is going to say, all right, something went wrong, insurance is going to pay for it. Uh, and so that's a way that everybody can kind of roll forward. It doesn't mean that there won't be a battle down the road that might take years to resolve about who, like, do they get paid back do they, all those kinds of things. But, um, they're going to pay out, uh, right off the bat, um, in order to keep everybody rolling forward and it doesn't matter who's negligent. They're not there representing any one of the players.
2: Could you go back through all twelve? And circle the answers for everyone.
1: I can if my pen is working.
2: Okay. Just hit the little um, the little pencil under drawing markups. Minimize that guy. And then
1: the pencil. Sorry about that. All right. Uh, so um, the correct answer on twelve is absolutely uh, builder's risk insurance. Uh, If we look at number 11, uh, the correct answer here is going to be um, that uh, uh, you're not going to talk to anybody other than the owner, and you're going to say, you should check it out. There's probably a problem with asbestos. we look at number 10, uh, the big issue we're going to have here uh, is going to be easements um, because um, uh, that's not necessarily part of the uh, uh, zoning code. Um, Now, you you could analyze that a couple different ways. Don't get overly worried about it. Um, It was mostly an opportunity for me to talk about the idea of easements, Um, so uh, it it can get used in a couple different ways, but there is a difference between easements and zoning. Let's see, okay, number nine was two, let's see, two, four, and five, so that's D. All right, number eight.
2: And just while everyone's going through this, if you have any questions, Uh, go ahead and queue them up in the question box or share them via Twitter uh, while Mike's going through this and when he gets to the end we'll run through any open questions.
1: So number eight was the construction worker and that one was all about uh, A is the answer because it's all about what you did on the job site. Did you take control of safety or did you do the right thing and and let the contractor take control of safety through the whole project? Um, And if you don't have any reason to be uh, sued, then they can still sue you. They can sue anybody they want, but uh, uh, there's no reason why you would think you would lose. Okay, we're going back to uh, uh, number seven. Uh, something's wrong with the uh, survey. Who's going to end up paying for the, the damages there? Well, that's definitely going to be the owner, unless you did unless you pulled the survey. That it's you, but if you're doing it. Properly by the, the uh, contracts, then it's going to be the owner. Uh, all right, so number six uh, who signs the uh, A201? Nobody signs the A201. Number five, uh, which uh, under 201, uh, which one of the following is not one of the architect's duties? Um, well, we found out after we went through all the adjudicating and uh, responding to RFIs and, and looking at submittals that it was actually D is the one that uh, is not and it's because of the word insure and because of the way it's sort of written out, like uh, how would you be able to compare the uh, proceeding in accordance with the contract documents if you were at say, 45% done Like, what does that even mean? There's, there's no part of the contract documents that says, okay, this is what it should look like at 45%. And the reason there isn't is because that's not your job. That's the job of the GC to figure that stuff out. All right, let's go to number four, standpipes. Uh, so standpipes are gonna be uh, A, uh, they're gonna be emergency use, uh, located near the stairs, and they're gonna be wet or dry. Okay. Uh, mechanics lien, this is that kind of odd one. Um, What you're essentially saying if you're filing a mechanics lien is I didn't get paid, so therefore I am claiming uh, the ownership interest of the amount that I didn't get paid uh, out of this property. So uh, I I now say that I am a part owner of this because I never got paid for the work that I put into it. That's what a mechanics lien is, and waiver of lien is saying, no, no, everything's fine. I'm not going to do that. Number two, uh, during the construction phase of a project utilizing AA contracts and architect ordinarily, the best answer here is going to be A, reviews and approves pay requests. All of the other ones are essentially a version of being part of means and methods, and means and methods is all the contractor. And then number one, the standard of care the two that were sort of the reasonably close were A and B, but the problem with A was that it was talking about a typical person, so it's just civilians. Uh, what we care about is B, the level of skill and care that the average typical architect, i.e. competent architect, similarly situated in a similar place, doing a similar type of project, would employ. So B. So there you go. What more you got? All
2: right, let's see. So... So Jake's asking, can you explain final waiver of Lane a little further and when that is submitted? Uh,
1: so if, uh, let's say, um, you as the architect or you're a subcontractor and you're part of, uh, uh, let's say you're a subcontractor, it's probably easier than a subcontractor. Uh, you're part of, say, um, uh, five different monthly payouts. So like, maybe you're the, the co- concrete guy. And so you have uh, done a bunch of work Uh the, you did excavation, you did some concrete uh, uh, foundations, you did some slabs, you did a bunch of other stuff. Um, eventually, you get to the end, the project may keep going. Like, there may be a bunch more work that's going to happen. you I mean, put roofs on, windows in, all kinds of stuff, but your part of the work is done. So if your part of the work is done and you've gone through these five different monthly draws and and, uh, you've submitted your work that you're ready for it to be paid and then you got paid uh, and you've given a waiver of lien at each one of those monthly draws, then when you got to the end of that, uh, the GC should say to you, okay, you're done, we're all done, our contract is now done. Uh, We have waivers of lien for each of these different amounts that add up to the total contract. Uh, give us a final waiver of lien, and that means that you're essentially saying, "Okay, we we got paid all the way through on this thing, and it and we're now we're now bowing out. We're now saying we have been paid. We're done. Thanks very much. We promise we won't put a lien on your project unless you do some crazy thing to us." Um, so yeah, the final waiver of lien happens at the end, but at the end of whatever that thing you're talking about is. Um, so for the architect, it probably doesn't happen until literally the very, very end, even though the vast majority of your work was done uh, much, much earlier in the process, uh, you're still working through construction administration all the way until substantial completion and final payouts and all that stuff. So your final waiver of lead probably goes in uh, on the, the final payment, um, the literally last payment.
2: Uh, Dan wanted to know, on number 11, can you advise the owner to test for asbestos, or would you just suggest a possible asbestos title was used? A uh, tile, or would you just suggest a possible asbestos title was used? So would you sort of say hey, owner, you sh- I'm going to advise you to test for asbestos, or would you say, well, it kind of looks like there was an asbestos tile
1: used here? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it actually can start getting very, very specific and, and uh, particular on the wording. But in general, both of those are, are totally reasonable. Um, it's completely reasonable to say, uh, you know, something doesn't look right. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert, but um, from what I've seen before, those 9x9 tiles... Uh, people tell me that those are asbestos. You probably should get uh, uh, an environmental reviewer in here to uh, to to, um, to check on this. And then you're essentially saying, look, this is this is you. You know, we're not responsible for environmental. This is your thing. But um, you know, from what we know, you know, we've been in the field. This seems like it probably is an issue. Um, you, but it's also totally reasonable to say, uh, it looks like asbestos to me you know, but I'm not an expert, right, and that should lead the owner all by themselves to decide to do that, so either of those are okay, Um, the main thing here is, um, I have some issues with this, because I actually think there's a lot of uh, parts of this where, uh, as architects, we've managed to sort of um, uh, wuss out on a lot of these kinds of things by um, sort of making sure we have no liability on any of it. it, means that we also don't really get a chance to say a lot about a lot of this stuff, Um, and essentially the way, sort of the standard of the law right now, the way that the AIA and NCARP are expecting you to answer, is if it's about um, uh, hazardous materials, uh, you really have no connection to it other than waiting to hear from the owner after they have gotten environmental information uh, from a, a, a licensed environmental Uh, contractor who is then going to give a report and in that report it'll say you should uh, encapsulate or you should do this or you should do that Um, and then either they will do it or then that information goes into the architectural drawings Um, but it goes into the architectural drawings essentially at the uh, at the direction of the owner from through this process of the environmental uh,
2: contractor. And then, just to be specific Ben says uh... Is it okay to, after you've notified the owner, is it okay to mention something to the contractor? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't
1: mean to make it say that you like, you have to be you know, mute about any of this kind of stuff. You can absolutely uh, talk to the contractor and say, you know, you might have a conversation saying, look, this seems to me like it's asbestos. What do you think of it? You know, like, that's a totally reasonable, and then maybe the two of you go to the owner and say, this looks like asbestos. You really should get uh, this officially taken care of. Um, uh, So it's completely reasonable to have those conversations. Um, You just want to be very, very careful to not take uh, control of those issues. (coughs) Um, Sorry. Uh, uh, Those are a little bit different from uh, safety on the job site. If you uh, it's not likely that it would happen this way, but technically you're on the job site and you walk along and you say, Hey, that elevator pit, you know, that looks dangerous. You should really have a railing there so that nobody falls in. Um, and then three months later, <coughs> uh, three months later, a, a wall falls over and kills somebody. Technically you have taken over the responsibility for the safety on that job site. So that's a much different situation than that
2: uh, environmental
0: one. All right, well, thanks, Mike. Uh, And thanks to all of you who've tuned in. If you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register to attend. You'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike for live feedback during that broadcast. And to learn more about our AIA ARE prep curriculum, go to blackspectacles.com. We'll also put a link in the show notes. And for those of you who want to get busy preparing for the ARE, you can use a 15% coupon off the first charge of any AIA ARE prep membership with code 52715 webinar, uh, which will expire on June 15th. And of course if you're already an AIA member, you can visit AIA.org slash ARE Prep to get a 30% discount for the entire duration of your AIA ARE prep membership, not just the first charge. Um, this also expires on June fifteenth. And finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions that you may have. I promise We'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.